you've been a bit of a fan of the pod. Yes, I'm a big fan. Big fan. I enjoy the uh, diversity of guests, backgrounds, uh, and how we all kind of have you as the middle point, so to speak. I think your um, line of work obviously brings different types of people together, uh, and this is what I've enjoyed over the last couple of months of your your podding. So welcome back to the Cairo London Podcast. As you've heard, it's Chris Cracknell, who was a big fan of the pod, as he has just let us know. Anyway, I rode my bike out to Windsor in the three, or was it one degree temperature. We sat on a park bench in dappled sunlight, froze my bird off, and then managed to sort of record this in three parts. The first two went pretty well. The third part basically didn't record at all, so we have zoomed in and finished the job at hand. So I hope you enjoy this. There's plenty for everyone as we cover his rugby career, his England Sevens career, which spanned over 10 years. His then very successful uh, coaching with Fiji, which uh, helped the men's team get a gold medal at the Rio Olympics. And then a complete shift from rugby to running the family business, which is a, a hair salon in Maidenhead. So, you know, lots of lessons learned from pro rugby life uh, as to how to work a small business. And it's really interesting to see, you know, how the journey of his life has gone so far. Now, what's he doing on the Cairo podcast, though, is that uh, we obviously met at the end of his Sevens career. It was cut short by injury, and not that I helped with his knees so much, which were pretty knackered, but um, his whole spine needed reconstruction, so we dabble into uh, the story of that as well. So, hope you enjoy the conversation. It goes from one end of the spectrum to another, and um, plenty for everyone. Thanks. Crackers, welcome to the podcast, mate. Uh, where are we located? Can you share for the listeners? We are in uh, Royal Windsor, um, about 500 yards from where I was born. Um, and there was a hospital, it's now flats, uh, such as it was that long ago. <laughs> um, we've joined up for a socially distanced exercise, coffee, podcast, on a bench. It is about three degrees I think and yeah. the sun has just broken through <laughs> uh, but mate very much looking forward to having a chat to you um, for those that don't know you um, are we going to describe you as who um, you have many different facets of your life already and how old are you now jack of all trades master of none uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've um, mastered uh, quite a few of the trades you've laid your hands teetering towards my late 30s Late thirties, cruising right. into the into the forties. Let's put it. Now, uh, ex-professional rugby player. Yep. Represented England mm-hmm. in the sevens. Yep. Um, turned your hand to then coaching. For a little little dabble, yeah. Very successful little dabble, <laughs> I think, uh, by helping Fiji gain two gold medals in one gold medal, one gold medal. And so the the girls, how did the girls go? They they qualify. Um, it was 
Well, I spent two years in Fiji um, with, with the boys uh, and one year with the girls. Uh, and the girls hadn't qualified for the world uh, for the for the Olympics. So oh, okay. that sort of job was to get them qualified for the Olympics, and then we got them to the uh, the quarterfinals of the Olympics. So oh, wow. um, came seventh or eighth at the Olympics, but okay. uh, yeah. Eight months before, we weren't even going, um, and they weren't even professional. We managed to scale that whole program to being a professional program within that time. I've um, obviously done my research then really yeah. thoroughly. <laughs> <laughs> sadly, sadly, that that side of it wasn't that well documented. The boys obviously got all the accolades deservedly, but yeah. you know the girls still kind of snuck under the radar of what they the great things that they achieved. I mean, there's now. You know, more women's teams in Fiji. They've qualified for the women's 15s World Cup, uh, and it all started from those sort of trailblazers. Then, look, then uh, obviously uh, successful short stint at coaching, and then um, a complete identity change to becoming <laughs> uh, a small business owner and yep. helping or taking over running the small business, right? Yep, yep. Um, which is um, uh, hair dressing family business run 35 plus years yep. in um, where? In Maidenhead. In Maidenhead. Yeah. Cracknell's hairdressing. Cracknell's hairdressing, yeah. Now, um, look, I want to sort of take apart all of those facets and okay. then see what you've actually sort of learned from um, all that stuff. Um, you'll get a nice little bit of uh, background bus noise. I was going to say, Hutch had seagulls on his podcast and we've got... <laughs> We've got the 395 to Datchet. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I thought uh, I thought travel was banned, but there's a nice jumbo jet flying yeah, ahead yeah, as well. It's some sort of DHL cargo plane with more toilet oh, roll in it. There or it is. Probably. No, it's a BA flight coming in from... That's probably Some Donald person. Trump on there just yeah. getting the hell out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. Evac, evac. <laughs> Air Force One, get me out of it. Um... No, look, uh, and so look, go back to rugby. You're, yeah. you're um, and funnily enough, you know, I spent a bit of time in Cornwall over the summer. Mm. And uh, just quickly, who did you play for uh, professionally? Again, a bit of a rap sheet on that front as well. I started uh, Maidenhead Rugby Club, uh, which is where it all kind of began. I had a friend who I now do some business with, ironically, who was, I played football with. And he was like, you're big, come play rugby at rugby club. And that's how I kind of got into the sport, really, was just being the big lad. Um, and then Maidenhead went to Harlequins. Uh, I was at Harlequins for a bit of time. Went to Newbury, which is where I met Ben Ryan. I'm sure we'll touch more on him later. Yeah. Uh, Newbury, uh, went down to Cornish Pirates. Spent two great years down there. Absolutely loved uh, loved my time in the West Country. Had another year at Exeter. Um, and then I moved to Bath, uh, Worcester, and then more sort of, I suppose, what I did more uh, throughout my entire career was play sevens throughout all of that uh, for England. Um, where I, I think played for 10 years they coached for the last sort of year and a half two years of it as well with them. so you played sevens for 10 years roughly yeah longer than that I actually started <laughs> I lied about my age um, <laughs> I, uh, I was at Harlequins and I liked the first ever men's rugby game uh, which would be pretty obvious to work out what club it was for uh, I was 15 and I was due to turn 16 in a couple of weeks but I'd been booted out of school so um, the club were like you know get him down here and playing rugby with the men give him something to do throughout the summer uh, and I played men's rugby from, from 15 so uh, you know it was just kind of chucked in at the deep end and, and then sevens came around about a year later when I was at Harlequins and I played for the White Hart Marauders over at Henley Sevens and that was how I got into that so really sevens was throughout my entire career was, was always there in the background 
Okay. Yeah, because you sort of, I remember you said once before, you ducked in and out of like mm. 15 mm. Uh, aside and 7 aside. Mm. Now, tell me, um, Exodus had a cracking year this year. Amazing right? year, yeah. Now, I mean, uh, I don't particularly follow it, but, but just <laughs> give us the story of what they've accomplished this year. Well, so it's 11 years ago since I played there. I left the year before they got promoted to the, uh, uh, to the Premiership. Um, and... They've won the Heineken Cup and the Premiership double, which is, I think, the third club to do to achieve that. So, 11 years ago, they were playing in the Championship, playing away at Otley and Nottingham and Sedgley Park, and probably clubs that a lot of people won't have heard of, uh, to now mixing it with you know the European champions, and they are a European champion side. So, what Rob Baxter and uh, and the coaching setup, and what uh, himself and Tony Tony Rowe, who uh, own Southwest Telecoms, have achieved down there is just monumental. Were they there you. when you were there? Yeah, yeah. Rob was wow. a forwards coach. Um, I played against Rob as well. Um, uh, you know, when I was at Newbury, and I think one more year when I was at Pirates uh, it was his sort of finishing up of his career. Um, you know, and what they've done and gone on to achieve is just absolutely incredible. From over that ten-year period. Uh, of how they've slowly, incrementally each year just got better and better. They've not got ahead of themselves. They've, they've just built slowly throughout, which I think, you know, what you know, we're, we're both uh, understanding of now in terms of your business uh, and, and mine, which is it's not about necessarily running ahead and, and winning everything at once. It's consistently building uh, and making sure that it's sustainable and, and consistent throughout rather than a flash in the pan thing. Wow. That is quite a story, though, isn't it? Um, which you could probably... I'm sure you have. Haven't you been chatting rugby quite a lot on podcasts these days? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Mate, I'm freezing. Uh, let's let's move down yeah. to a little different <laughs> venue, maybe finish these cinnamon buns, and then yep. we'll get into sevens and injury and how Cairo and how we met and the RPA and all that sort of stuff. Definitely. There's another aeroplane. So much for lockdown. <laughs> All right, take two. We've, we've, we've gotten the second cup of coffee. <laughs> we've uh, re- re- relocated to Windsor Beach. <laughs> uh, the sun has come out, yes. but um, uh, man, it was a bit chilly out the front of old Queenie's <laughs> Palace there. Um, so, heating's off. <laughs> so, here we are. We got, I think, talking about. Um, we're about to sort of go into your your sevens career. Which, yes. Um, was it? Was it? Did I see somewhere that it was fairly groundbreaking when you joined the sevens? It really sort of was the start at the start of the sort of sevens getting some serious momentum. Yeah. Well, um, so twenty ten. There's obviously uh, Commonwealth Games in Delhi, um, and just prior to that, with with Ben Ryan as our coach, and Ben's innovative, and you know I can. That's a whole separate podcast about you know uh, the places I've uh, been and the journeys I've been on with that uh, with, with with him. Um, but his innovative sort of way and thinking, he realised very early on that sevens wasn't going to continue to be successful. Thus, have a successful program if we kept you know capping players every tournament. Like my my first year, I think. It was over 42 caps or something crazy made that year. So he was ultimately trying to get it down so that there was this consistency. We could talk about consistency again in, in you know, business and then what Exeter did. But you know, consistency in players, so there wasn't that much change. Get used to routine of playing with the same group of men. Um, 
whilst developing them as rugby players, but ultimately, you know, making us a successful sevens outfit. Um, so he pushed hard to get uh, certain criteria of players on contracts by playing with uh, clubs. So I was playing there whilst I was at Exeter, uh, and then I played a mix of at Bath and Worcester and, and sevens. Uh, and then in 2010, because of the Commonwealth Games, he managed to get the RFU to sanction us, um, become a full-time out- outfit and got given a, a small amount of budget for that. Um, and I think there was uh, 10 or 12 of us that went full-time, uh, of which I was you know, one of that, of that bunch. Um, and that was where the, I'd already been playing for a couple of years, but that was where the real sort of journey began of Olympic qualifi- uh, Olympics had been given the green light. You know, we were going to Commonwealth Games. We were then a full-time program. South Africa were following suit. New Zealand were looking to do it. Other countries were then getting on board with Sevens being almost its own standalone sport uh, with its own right and its own type of athlete uh, and, and rugby player. Yeah, so... Um, like pro sevens wasn't really a thing until around that time where the contracts were formed and 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 that's what I mean in fact that you were sort of leading the way or helping forge the way with that Um, and that's where you left the 15 game and went full time sevens Um, and that were probably some of the best days of your life right just cruising the world Uh, yeah you know, uh, how many of those, uh, there was sort of five or six or seven big tournaments every year, wasn't there? Um, uh, so when I started in 07, 08, there was seven or eight tournaments a year. When I finished, there was 10. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was it was a year-round sport. It was, I mean, 15s has its place, 7s has its place, and there's a lot of debate around it at the moment as to what the rugby landscape should look like. But for me, for that period of my life, being in my mid-20s, I was... Travelling the globe, playing playing a sport that was fantastic, kept you fit, seeing the world. And, yeah, like you say, time of life, we've got some great memories. Uh, some of them uh, have been some obscure places like Russia and, uh, and a few other odd countries that have been to European tournaments as well, but uh, you know, some amazing memories, like you say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I'm sure, so it was, it was that time that. Ben Ryan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was coaching the Sevens. Yeah. Uh, and then at a similar time, did he leave the Sevens when you sort of retired? Mm-hmm. Or did he stay on there for a little while and then ended up at Fiji a little bit later? No, no. <laughs> Sadly, a little bit more sinister than that. Uh, and uh, there's a agreement somewhere, which means I can't disclose too much about it. But effectively, Ben left after what was deemed an unsuccessful, uh, unsuccessful year. Uh, even though we got to a World Cup final in 2015, uh, Simon Amor came in as head coach. Ben um, basically wasn't sure what he was going to do and got told to apply for the Fiji job, didn't think anything was going to come of it, and then had a, a phone call giving him 20 minutes to decide whether he wanted to move to Fiji or not. Uh, by the time he got to Fiji, the guy that had employed him uh, had been sacked, um, and you know, the rest is history with that journey of his two and a half, three year stint over there. Um, of you know building the program literally from nothing up, which is similarly what he did with with us and England Sevens. You know, it was a part time program that went to tournaments, uh, and then Ben turned it into a full time program that you know has created and, and brought through some great players. You know, like Roger McConaughey who went to the World Cup, plays for Bath. All these guys are, have you know, grown off the back of what Ben innovatively produced in 2010. Um, so he left and went to Fiji. I played for another. 
a year after he left uh, before having to retire due to injury um, and uh, and I was coaching in that year as well so the, the, to go right back to your original question the whole the reason why the goalpost change was the Olympic inclusion in 2009 and that really was what helped us the segue to get us to to this full-time program and what everyone was striving towards and I think everyone's driver for being there was going to the Olympics in 2016 yeah okay so go go back to that whole thing of sort of how we met I, I seem to remember we met when um, you literally I guess you know, I had some sort I, of operation, probably. <laughs> well, it was like identity crisis number one. It yes. was like, yeah. okay, yeah. I'm a full-time rugby player, um, <laughs> and now my body has completely fallen apart. Um, uh, what can I do about it? Um, mainly, your knees were in all sorts of sh- shambolic state. Yeah. Yeah, um, but Postures I remember you, all over the shop. you broke yeah. your neck. I think at one point, had you? probably or? no. I hadn't broken my neck. My yeah. neck, my, my collarbone had sort of taken a few different forms of shapes and still doesn't quite resemble what a collarbone should do but uh but look given the fact that this is kind of a chiropractic podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> well it is well, uh let's go we, there because um I, I wanted to speak to about like the like it's that that thing is as a especially in pro rugby like it's all about getting you back on the field right yeah, being able yeah. to perform uh and um the, there is obviously not a focus at all on health and mm-hmm. well-being of the player. It's no. just about being able to be on the pitch mm. and mm. perform to some degree of ability. Yeah, uh, I think I, I think as a professional sports person, um, you know, you've got some element of you will always be injured. I mean, depending on what sport it is that you play. But you know, we both have a, a, a fond love of cycling. I don't think. You can name many cyclists that ever get on their bike 100% fit. Same with rugby, same with soccer. You know, AFL, another sport that we both enjoy. Like it's, you know, it's just part and parcel of being a sportsman. But what you have as your profession is to make the best of your ability to look after yourself as best possible. Now, I came through a generation of rugby players that would lie and pretend you weren't concussed and knocked out, and you broke things, and you wouldn't tell anybody about it. And you'd go and see guys like yourself to get yourself fixed, so that you didn't present as injured, so you could be selected for for something. And that was the mentality: it was at all costs make sure that you were on the field. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, obviously the the the, the medical crew had pressure to get mm. you on the pitch 100%, yeah. uh, you put pressure on yourself and on them probably say hey look come yeah. on doc just let me on I'm good you know yeah. um, can't feel my right leg but yeah. um, you know just uh, yeah. I'll be good for another game yeah because you know that maybe the target was come off games or, or oh, whatever it was, it was. Um, yeah I mean I played with broken ribs and all sorts of things you know and it was a case of like what's the, the ultimate goal here is we win a tournament or we got a winning game so you know pain management how can we deal with that what can we take what can you use what can you strap what can you offload you know and that was the the here and now making that decision at a tournament or any game and then the rest of it would then be six days of getting yourself right to do that I mean I can't describe the amount of times that personally and guys I've played with can't walk during the week and yet, come Saturday, they're running around for eighty minutes, and then they're back to not being able to walk again. <laughs> you know, is, is, is and that, I've, I've, I've been a case in point of that. It's, it's, it's actually farcical that that's is that that's medically induced kind of uh, like Some, injections? Yeah, and stuff yeah, or, no, uh, no. It's, sometimes it's taping. Sometimes it's mentality. Sometimes it's just doing what's got to be done and, adre- and adrenaline. You know, I mean, I look back at it now and 
no wonder my mum didn't like me playing the sport. <laughs> you know, you know. But, but I was also surprised when I sort of first saw you that you basically said that even at the level of England Sevens, mm. you didn't have a chiropractor or access to no. a chiro. No. Um, you had a fair bit of physio, yeah, obviously medical physio help, team, yeah. um, but sort of no one just sort of giving you that sort of fairly specific spinal no. work to kind of keep things moving. Right? No. The first time I ever came across it was um, when I was playing at Harlequins. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was a Cairo that we had at the club because a couple of the senior boys swore, swore by him and he became part of the woodwork there. I mean, that's going back to early 2000s. And then from that point, it was just, you know, the physio would realign you if something was out and that was that was it. Um, which, now knowing what I know from seeing you towards the end of my career, I wish I'd continued on that and had, had that throughout because the posture alignments and the corrections that you gave me when I was, you know, I was in hospital for quite a period of time with a hip operation. Uh, and I just sat there getting worse and worse and worse. Now the physio side of it helped because obviously of muscle activation and the rest of it, but actually aligning the rest of my body was not being taken sort of care of. It was a case of work this muscle harder, make this muscle bigger and stronger, and you'll be all right. And that's why we're all as generically as sportsmen, rugby players, are just this block lump of meat. <laughs> but, that, but that's, <laughs> that's what I, you know, I found you, or I found, you know, you, you literally couldn't turn your neck past mm. halfway mm. when you try and look left mm. or right, you know. And yeah. that's sort of that's the sort of level of of brokenness that I found you in yeah. when you you sort of retired. Your your, your knees were were knackered. Mm. Um, and you've been treating me for a couple of years before that as well, so yeah. we hadn't really scratch the surface when I was playing to what effectively we found I still I still, I mean, I still remember you doing the x-rays uh, and it, it was when you x-rayed my dad there's two, two two amusing x-ray points one was I looked at an x-ray and saw a safety pin before it had been left in my body um, but it's actually in my shorts but I saw on the x-ray I was like something left in my body from something there's a bit of metal in there that we didn't even know about uh, and the other was um, when you x-rayed dad and put the two together and this actually was when I've realised A, just how much amazing work seeing you had done but B, just how much of a state of disrepair I was in was you've got a guy in his 60s and his spine was nice glistening white and mine was just grey and dull and misshapen and I'd been seeing you for two years and I was still in that bad estate um, you know, but it, it just showed that for me you know, we talk about health there's a, there's a whole uh, health piece um, not just around being fit, you know, cardiovascularly. There's body health, there's mental health, there's, you know, there's all sorts of different facets to it. And the thing I found with coming to you for one was I was physically fit. And then I was, you know, getting my body realigned and actually into a pain free environment, but also seeing somebody completely separate from um, my world gave a good sort of rounding to it so there was a sort of mental well-being piece there to actually go and see somebody I could just chat with have a yarn you know sort my back out make the pain diminish some somewhat for a couple of days <laughs> before coming back in and seeing you again but also that that extra bit of space in my life you know I think that's where the coffee Cairo combo was also correct. very important correct with the Highly grind coffee bar exactly bar. Yeah. formatively <laughs> formatively grind uh, now ground coffee society <laughs> now 79 collective yes it's changed, changed again, again isn't it yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, just lastly on the rugby thing before we go elsewhere, but um, what was the, did you, was the RPA quite helpful in that whole process of you retiring as well? Or yeah. Um, that's kind of their remit, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Support the right, Another mutual friend of ours, uh, Damien Hopley, who I've known for a long time right at the inception of uh, you know, him, him getting RPA off the ground um, and his... Uh, his team there uh, fantastic again to go back to that, that mental sort of well-being piece they were excellent at helping uh, the players look at life after the sport I mean it's up to the players to in some respects drink the water that they're led to but um, you know the RPA do everything within their power to be able to, to bridge the gap for rugby players leaving sport and going into the real world so to speak um, but also you know they are they are there for you know everything else that isn't seen you know we are we did we did I did put my body through the mill um, and now as a you know guy in his late 30s is still paying for it because you know I still regularly see one of your Proteges who lives nearer to me and for an, for an, for an alignment and I, and I spend most of my time rehabbing whilst before going to work <laughs> you know and the RPA have, have everything in between to help with that you know they'll get you physio care if you need it and they'll get you um, psychologists if you need it and, and, and they'll help you open the door for you into your next next job as well so and also help with uh, learning experiences and stuff like that. so the RPA are fantastic in what they've done um, you know and, and they get a bit of a bad rap sheet sometimes for certain things but for me they were they were excellent and you know Damien, another friend of ours, has, has sort of set all that up. So. No, but look, I've had a little listen to what we've done so far, and uh, it's hilarious. It's great. It works well with the background noise. Um, again, apologies for screwing up the recording of the third. There was so much gold on that too, you know. Um, we try and recreate some of it now. I just try to remember what. I'm, well, the, the, the food, water, shelter thing is easy to replicate. Um, <laughs> Mate, we're going already. So let's just, uh, I don't know where we're going to cut this in, but I'll cut it in at some point and we're just going to go. So you're recording. I'm re- sorry, I'm recording um, already. <laughs> um, I hope someone's recording. Jesus. <laughs> Unlike last time. I can, you know, the best part about this though is I'm sitting in a nice warm room. I've got some clothing on which is keeping me warm. It's not three degrees. Hey. I said you don't look so transparent anymore. Oh, I was, uh, yeah, I was cold. Um, bad idea to do on location podcasting, even in the three, well, three degree sunshine. But uh, anyway, hey, look. So, but look, we did cover pro rugby. Recovered your sevens. We actually went into a fair bit of detail around the whole injury thing and Cairo and how we met. Um, and we'll just tipping into the Fiji story. So you're going to have to cast your mind back and tell that story again for the 43rd hundredth time. (laughs) 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 Can you remember? You know, uh, but what year was it again? Uh, It would have been 2015. So I had in my knee. 2015, uh, that's going to be annoying if that goes off. Um, I did my knee 2015. Um, and let me just turn, close certain apps down that I know will make noise. Um, is it 2015 I did my knee? Yeah, 2014, 2015. Uh, when was Must have been 2016 was the Olympics, right? So Yeah, so... Um, 
Yeah, in 2014, I did my knee. Uh, 2014, I did my knee and I moved out to Fiji at the end of that year, beginning of 2015. So, um, yeah, quite a a long time ago now, blimey. Uh, So, yeah, I I can't remember what we were saying, how I got there, but... um, yeah, get well, just just go over the whole thing again, right? So you you end you ended your um uh you know the your sevens career ended prematurely. Yeah. You then got this job with Ben, who had been your previous coach, and you'd uh, yeah. as you were a player, and yeah. then he was obviously developing this cool program out in uh, Fiji and wanted some help, right? Um, yeah. And then you were fully in charge of the women's uh, competition, which second, um, yeah, in the second year. Yeah, yeah. But then, what well, the first year, your assistant coach to the men's team. Yes, yeah. Uh, right. And and then that was obviously one big drive. What ended up being for both of those teams to be heading to the Rio uh, Olympics. Although, as you said previously, the women's team actually hadn't even qualified for that yet, and That's that right. was part of your job to actually make sure that happened. And they did qualify, right? Yeah. So my, so my my first year there, I wasn't actually paid. It wasn't a paid job, right? I'd spent that summer post-injury uh, a lot on the physio bed in Putney. Um, sorry, the Cairo bed in, in, in Putney, getting realigned by you because I've been in that hospital. Uh, ben gave me, uh, me a call and was like, look, you know, we, I desperately need someone to help me out here. I can't pay you, but, you know, can you, can you come out? And I was still injured to a point where I wasn't allowed to coach and I had to be signed off by the RFU, even though I'd been released uh, and was no longer employed by them. I had to be signed off medically by them to tick all the right boxes, you know, as you as you exit, uh, as I exited through injury. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I basically went out just into the beginning of 2015, um, but I went out, you know, packed up a rucksack with a couple of T-shirts in it, an old pair of boots and, uh, and a couple of pairs of jeans, a couple of pairs of shorts, and, and off I went. And, uh, found myself in Fiji or picked up uh, at the airport um, and drove through, you know, this place that I'd only ever heard of and I played with so many Fijian players. But the thing that struck me was the rawness of, of the island um, and how every little village you went went along, there was always a rugby pitch or some form of pitch somewhere along the way. Um, and everyone knew who, who Ben was and people had stopped his car and and, and we, as we went on this sort of three, four-hour car journey, which seemed to just basically be down, you know, the, the type of road that we cycled down around in the in the Surrey Hills would seem like a motorway in comparison. So, uh, yeah. you know, it was a pretty stark contrast to that life in southwest London that I'd been living, you know, for, you know, six months as, a, as an injured ex-pro athlete trying to work out what I was going to do with my life uh, and where I was going. So... Yeah, and then obviously Ben was employed to um, focus in on um, trying to win the Rio Olympics and and needed some help, got you on board. Uh, and then you had this kind of, I, I guess, the fairly raw bunch of talent, though, that needed sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, improving their skills or, or you know, well, actually you did mention it, the fact that you wanted to teach them that when they're on the pitch, that they could deal with any circumstance that sort of got in front of them, right? Is that is that kind of what your coaching was, or what was it? No, uh, it's. I mean, there was a huge difference, right? And and I'll, and I'll come on to an anecdote at the end of this, but there was a huge difference 
culturally in terms of uh, Fiji versus the UK. Like I went from this superficial world in wealth London, in Southwest London, where you had, you know, you know everything really at your beck and call. You've got food if you want it on a, by the end of the phone. Uh, you can walk down, down and get a coffee quite easily, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, conversely, you were sat in a, in a country whereby the, the sevens team is the mecca. It's the be all and end all. If you're part of that team, you know it gives you opportunities to, to go on and do far greater things for yourself, for your family, for for everyone that's sort of surrounding you including the nation, really. Um, so we'd have you know, upwards of I think between 50 and 1,000 people would come and watch a training session. They'd be scrutinised heavily in the papers. Pre the Olympics, there was a demand for at least 20, artic- uh, 20 pages worth of articles a day on the team prior to the Olympics. And this was just the men. The women, um, you know, the same sort of pressures as well because at that time, women's sport in Fiji wasn't a thing. You know, they didn't want the women to play rugby. It was very uh, well stuck in the, the dark ages in terms of mentality. Uh, you know, women should be in the kitchen, not playing rugby, not playing sport. And we had to try to change that um, attitude as well with the women's programme. So there's all these different, you know, uh, directions that we're being pulled in to make sure we're doing the right thing. But at the core of it are these amazing human beings who adapt and can uh, overcome all sorts of uh, difficulties and, 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 and challenges that life present themselves versus, you know, what my, my position, my position I'd come from, from West London and Ben had come from West London, whereby we were working for a union that had absolutely everything. And we had a group of players, men and women, that were staying in a dormitory together. You'd have never had that with England. Do you know what I mean? There'd have been uproar. We needed a hotel. These guys were staying in the dorm where they had to wash their own kit. And this is the men and the women. Wash their own kit, help cook their own dinners. You know, like everything had to be self-sufficient. And was, it, was that just in certain lead-ups to the competition or was that sort of almost like uh, all year round the team lived together? Whole time, Uprising Resort in Fiji where we were based had a dorm. That was the only way we could you know that's just that's just the way the Fijian teams camp you know you, they call it coming into camp we were a full-time program with both men and women coming into camp the girls stayed at a Christian camp down the road um and then the, the boys stayed at uprising both were in dorms bunk beds you know wash, washing their kit by themselves we had instead of having um uh like training jerseys and training kit and etc etc we had our match kit which if we were training and it was my team versus your team, you're right. Um, Craig, you turn your shirt inside out because it's white on one side, it's black on the other side. And, uh, you know, crackers, you keep yours in, in white, right? You two against each other and that's how you divvy the teams up. No bibs and, you know, sort of flash flash stuff, so to speak. But what, I got used to that quite quickly and I loved it because it was so, it was so raw and it showed me actually what was the main thing was getting the best out of you as a player, what can, how can I make you know, Craig McLean the best version of himself uh, to make our journey, you know, moving forward? How can we have fun at training? How can everyone evolve and be self-sufficient? Because mine and Ben's end goal with Fiji was to be redundant, you know, to, to step away, come that Olympic final and go, hey, boys, you own it. You, you know, we've, we've done everything we can to put you in the best possible position because that was, that was the goal and the, and the prize, which is, earlier on how we were bringing it back to business is 
allowing people who you employ to be who they are and evolve within that whilst putting a certain amount of parameters around them to help guide them along the way but be their own individual self and because uh, I, I do like that quote or the the definition of a coach which is um he, he or she is someone who makes you do the stuff you don't want to actually do to achieve the stuff that you really want to achieve and do you you reckon that's appropriate or or, or not necessarily yeah i think I mean, Ben's, Ben's been a mentor and a coach to me. And there's been times when me and him have fallen out massively, right? Full on rows. Uh, but actually, sometimes it's been for the better of me and sometimes it's for the better of him. And we challenge each other uh, quite well like that. Um, but the essence of the core of it was good, good friendship and a good relationship. But he's coached me through 10, 12 years for all sorts of things, all sorts of parts of life. And that comes with um, challenging conversations. You know, uh, and I've got a friend who's an ex-paratrooper and and he always talks about, but why? So why are we doing this, Craig? You know, why are we doing this? Can we make it better? What if that doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? But why? You know, and they seem very petulant questions to ask. But if you ask that, you a troubleshooting as you go along. You're finding the core of, uh, of how everything could fall down and you're really ripping it, like ripping it apart to make sure that it works. Um, and come back to where we were with Fiji, like we didn't have bells and whistles and stuff that would, you know, to use the quote from the, um, the, fame, the, the book, would it make the boat go faster? You know, all those one percenters that we hear from Team uh, Ineos now that it is with Dave Brailsford, Clive Woodward, you know, actually the one percenters for us were, does this person get along with the rest of the team? Because we've got to travel the world. Does this person with professional little bits that are that, that are needed, does he watch his own kit? Does he, you know, you know, clean his wounds? Does he go and see the physio when he needs to see the physio? Is he asking and challenging the other players around him? Is he being the best version of himself on the field? Mm, and right. why isn't he if he isn't? Is it him? Is it personal life? What's going on away from the field? What's going on in his village? You know, um, and and all the rest of it that that makes them tick. You know, is the family. So, so probably a good lead into that story you told me earlier, <coughs> which I didn't record. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, about that little gathering you would get together every morning or once a week or how often? Then you tell uh, the story. Yeah, morning. So, so we we've sort of gone to uh, you know a different part of the, of, of the journey of being in Fiji and how it was such a just, just changed my life really and changed my outlook on things but when I first landed there Ben picked me up drove along uh, Queens Road Queens Highway uh, which is just beautiful it's called the Coral Coast um, and I'm sure you've been there like I've never been I can't wait but yeah it's, it's just stunning um, you know and it's such a beautiful place where you take step back from the coral coast and you've got these little villages um which i'll come you know this the story that i'll tell comes back to why these little villages are so important but uh so last all day or two and training had wrapped up and ben was like, oh you know we've got to go to lotu they do it in the, the boys do it in the morning and do it in the evening kind of glossed over it i then learned that lotu is the start point and the end point of the day we got up in the morning we had prayer 
somebody would say a verse in the Bible, we'd sing a song, which is great. Like if you ever get a moment, go on YouTube, type in uh, Fijian hymns and hear, hear, hear the Fijian uh, prayer from the song. It's just, just, just amazing to listen to. Uh, and so all the boys would sing and then we'd give thanks for the day ahead. Uh, we uh, pray for anybody that was injured or anybody had a family member that was that was ill or, or, or something surrounding the support network. Um, and they do the same in the evening. So let's say a player got injured in training or who was ill or uh, something had happened during the day or somebody got something wrong during the day. You know, it would be about giving thanks for the day that we've had, the training we've had, the session that was that's put together by the coaches and the management. And then there'd be, you know, the, uh, an apology if somebody had got something wrong or someone was late and didn't do their rehabilitation properly, et cetera, et cetera. And it sort of brought us all together. But but was this was this led by the the locals and something that happened even before you arrived, right? And you just integrated it, into that, right? It's, it's tradition, but families would do it. Families would wake up in the morning. And you've you've been to you've, you've been to Bali, and you know in Bali when there's the yeah. the, the offering to to God in the morning that cut this yeah. the incense on it and stuff like that. It's, yeah. it's how they begin and finish the day, uh, and it's just a cultural thing that mm. we don't know. You know, like people used to go to church here in the morning. We don't do it anymore in the UK. Mm. Uh, whereas in in Fiji, it's still that is their church sermon yeah. um, to begin the day to give thanks for what's about to happen. But how good is that? Where you're literally analysing your day, morning and evening, every day, and trying to be grateful for the stuff that happened, and uh, maybe picking apart some of the stuff that wasn't done so well. So then you can learn from that and move on to the next day, right? And the irony I've always thought with it was it was never about rugby. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm barely ever. I cannot remember a lot of that. The only thing ever touched on with rugby was to say to the boys, right, boys, training's at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Sweet, cool. Don't need a bit of paper on a wall. You don't need a text reminder. You don't need a WhatsApp group. None of that. It's just like, be there, 8 o'clock. Cool. Okay. You know, and everyone buys in. Everyone remembers it. There's no need to complicate it. It's so simple and so raw. Um, but, the, you know, what we discussed earlier in, uh, you know, Take, I don't know, eight. At, at, at Windsor Beach, you nicely called it. <laughs> <laughs> Warm. Um, uh, it, 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 uh, we, we sat there and, like I say, um, to, to sort of give a bit of a picture of, of, the, of the situation, we sat in the, in the boys' dorm. Uh, the beds have been pushed to one side. All the boys are in Buddha shirts and Sulu, uh, which to, you know, Western society would be like a skirt or like a, uh, a sarong almost. Um, Sulu is like a traditional uh, dress, a Fijian male dress, which you would wear, and then a bullet shirt over the top. I was there in jeans and a t shirt, or shorts and a t shirt, Ben's in jeans and a shirt, or something of that amalgamation. And we were sat on chairs, uh, and, and the boys would be sat down on the floor, cross legged. Now I've played, these are my peers, do you know what I mean? Like I played with them, against them, like Osao, Asaki Katanibao, like guys I've known for a long time, 10 years. You know, and they're sat on the floor cross-legged and I've been put up on this pedestal of hierarchy uh, because I'm now management. And um, which is really, really weird for me, um, but also really, really weird because everything else about Fijian culture that I'd learned within 45, 48 hours was so encompassing. Everyone's involved in everything. You know, there was no kind of 
we're up here, you're down there. But all of a sudden, in this situation, it was very colonial. Um, and uh, and so this would be how we'd start and finish the days. But this particular event, which happened to, so early on to when I was in, in Fiji, was uh, Nadar, who was our strength and conditioning coach, would quite often lead, um, or one of the players would. It was always taken in turns. And this particular instance, Nadar was talking about what brings us all together, um, you know, what's important in life and, and, and the values and, and around that stuff. Uh, and, and sort of talking, I can't remember the, the chapter from the, the Bible he was reading, but he was, he was reading from the, from the Bible when he asked the question to the group. Now, you've got a squad of 22 players, all Fijians, you have a very, very high-pitched voice or very, very deep voice. There's, there's no kind of range in between, you know. <laughs> and uh, we had a guy called Dini Nungusu who played from Newcastle, massive bloke, high-pitched as you like. You just hear a high-pitched tone running around. <laughs> He's calling the things. It's always amusing. It always amused me. And, uh, and um, Nadar asked this the question to the group, which was, boys, what's the most three most important things in life? And... I mean, the boys answered very, very quickly, but in my sort of short time frame, I sat there and I thought, I wish I was playing rugby again, you know, you know this is very different to what, you know, home, like, home is like, you know, back in the UK and, you know, a lot of sort of superficial things running through your head as Western society people would naturally go straight to. Uh, ben was sat next to me and, and, and I think he might have even been on his phone. Um, and in all this sort of, you know, microsecond that... I took this snapshot in the players chapter and verse, uh, sorry, all the players are all in the same time in unison, just when food, water, shelter. And I had this <laughs> bit, like, bit like being whacked around the face with a wet fish, you know, like how wrong am I to think of the way that I'm thinking when this is the most important thing to them, you know, it's the core essence of life, which is, as Nether I went to go on to, 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 to divulge was with food, with water, with shelter, you can protect for your family, you can protect your family, you can look after your family, you can grow your family. It's the, it's the raw solid foundation of everything that you need to then go on and conquer and, and gain and, and, and get better and move forward. Without that, we don't have anything. And in Fiji, the players learn that from a young age from their religious upbringing but also they learn that you know they go out they work it goes back to the village they go out they work harder more goes back to the village the village prospers the playing for the national team you know and these guys are in a situation where they're playing for the national team we're looking at at that point we were looking we were doing really well in the world series we were looking at winning the first world series for a long time for fiji you know, we were looking at the Olympics down the road, maybe a second world title. It's never been done. Fiji has never done back-to-back world titles. And these are all things that we ticked off. But it started with this foundation of, you know, just doing well for your village where you're from and making sure there's food on the table, making sure there's a roof over your head, making sure you're warm, you know, and playing for the national team, playing for the sevens team gave them that because it meant an income because they were full-time. Well, the income would have been no more than six or seven thousand UK pounds. Uh, you know, it was ten to fifteen thousand Fiji in a year. Not a lot of money to your eye, but there's a big salary in Fiji. It was high, high level salary. Wow. So that put you in, in the shop window to go and play overseas to earn more money to send more money back to the village. You know, all these guys, there's nearly two hundred Fijians playing in the in Europe. 
all that money, 80% of their salary will go back to their village so that the village can grow and prosper and buy crops, uh, buy car, carver crop, crops so that it can be sold, buy fruit crops so they can be sold by the roadside to the tourists to, to put food on the table. So, But that sort of selfless, you know, the, the act of selflessness, if we all took a little leaf out of that book, that would be phenomenal for humanity, wouldn't it, you know? Because um, uh, we're obviously in a society which pretty much focuses on the self, not mm. the selfless, you know. Uh, what can I do for myself? Why do I get out of bed in the morning? Well, it's for me. It's not for anyone else, you know. Um, the, the the family, the community, the the you know, the, the little villages that used to be sort of really important around here, Um it's changing, isn't it? You know, and, and this whole global pandemic thing, I think pretty much is probably going to make a lot of people reconsider their options with regards to, or their choices, including I, me, you know, like I'm stuck over here. I can't even go back to Australia for. Well, my dad is in Australia, aren't they? So oh, they're, they're in Australia. Thank God they're in, in yeah. great shape and healthy, but you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's an issue which, uh, you know, is, is a bit of a scary prospect with regards to, but, you know, uh, it used to be easy just to kind of drop here or there and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, we, we digressed a little bit away from We are, like, you know, like you and I are doing this over uh, over uh, Zoom or Teams or whatever it is we're on. That isn't a thing in the village. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You mean they don't have Wi-Fi? <laughs> yeah, iPhone, Samsung's like, um, a lot of people have phones, uh, but it's not, it's, it's not a thing, is it? Is it to, yeah. yeah. There's, there's Fiji, which again the hierarchy. Uh, hey, um, I, I I wanted to go though. I mean, because I'm sure we could talk about this forever though. But the the going into Rio itself, right? That must have been such a mind blowing experience. Even though I know these guys have been around the globe playing the sevens tournaments and all that sort of stuff. But just make a brief comment on the whole Rio Village uh, and pre and post experience. You know, so. <laughs> It was crazy. Just we we actually kept we did two, we did a couple of different things. Um, we went to Chile. A lot of teams went to LA or went to these uh, places to do like um, camps and high temperature, high altitude, various bits and pieces. And Ben and I had been and done a load of that sort of stuff before. Been to Commonwealth Games and things, and we kind of learned not from our mistakes, but also learned that probably the best thing for us to do was to go in late because of the distractions in the village. To, um, to control that because it was a controllable, to also be off the radar so no one really knew what we were up to, just, you know, just 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 hang back, just relax, as Fijians would say, relax, man, uh, just, just, just chill out, you know, but get our training right, focus on us. So we went to Chile, uh, Santiago, um, and it was a straight shoot into Rio then, three-hour flight, there was no time difference, we didn't have jet lag, we could go in late as, as we possibly could, which is three days, uh, two days before competition, so you weren't in and around the village and the, and the distractions that were going on there. Um, the girls' competition was early, so we had like a lead party, which was myself and my management team, the, the women, to learn where everything was so that then we could feed back to the boys. So when they came in, they were in a better position again to know how to get around the village where everything was, but we'd done all of our training, you know, it was like purely in team run tournament, bang, straight into it. Um, and the experience of the Olympics was just chaos. So you got three, four 
you know, in five football fields worth of uh, dinner hall, you know, and nations coming at you. They're all in different times. Everyone's on a different time zone for competition, eating time, different, uh, you know, people are going to competition, people are on a day off. There's so many things that can go wrong. You've got to get a bus to your competition. You've got to get a bus in the right area. Like there's all sorts of bits and pieces. So, you know, we just try to condense that down and control it as much as possible, which was easy because the boys just wanted to be together. They were away from the village. So in some respects, they created that atmosphere within the two rooms that we had for the men, two rooms that we had for the girls. You know, we had the Lotu and we, and we just really condensed and hunkered down as, as, as one sort of tight unit, really, uh, to avoid the distractions. I mean, we sat at dinner and Rafa Nadal was sat on the table over from, from us. And Ben and I were like, Christ, it's Rafa Nadal. None of the boys had a clue. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Amazing. Kind of sweet in the innocence of it, but at the same time, it was like one of the biggest tennis superstars in the world. But that kind of went over their heads. Yeah. Uh, you know, and fast forward to post celebrations, you know, we had the carver session in the room. There was no going out and painting the town red uh in 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 uh in Rio. The, the boys just went back to the room and, and, and drank carver. Ben and I were in uh in Padima and uh, uh and um what's the famous place in, in Rio, I've forgotten the name of it now, but like you know, we went and let loose two days later after this conversation. <laughs> after a couple of days, they just wanted to go home. You know, they want to go back to the village. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back to Fiji. They didn't want to stay in, uh, in in Rio and you know go to the hundred meter finals and, and things like that. It wasn't it wasn't on their radar. They they'd done their job. Wanted to go home and, and see their family. Wow. So. Okay, we're fast-forwarding now. That's uh, mate, Thanks so much for sharing uh, in detail, I guess, this long format thing. You know, if anyone's actually made it to this section of the podcast, uh, <laughs> I hope. They... It's like planes, trains and automobiles with us. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, um, I hope they've enjoyed That was certainly in sight for a couple of years, wasn't it, you know? And then... Um, you know, it's my life, like, without doubt, the, the learning from it. Don't believe you didn't go surfing that much, though. What's going on there? Yeah, heaps. I went to a place called Beach House, which is actually... Oh, you did? Okay. They, yeah, they filmed the original Love Island uh, for those... I, I thought there was an issue, though, with it. Like, it's obviously reef breaks, and you can kind of take um, your life yeah, in your own hands when you're surfing, right? Did that, I did that on numerous occasions. <laughs> I had a box of limes that I kept in the, in the fridge Oof. Uh, to, uh, to deal yeah. with the reef that was permanently in my uh, in my skin so. but no look we shouldn't talk about fiji this isn't the fiji podcast uh although uh, the fiji tourism is quite welcome to sponsor me for a trip to fiji uh so i can go surfing um <laughs> but um but you you come back you've obviously you know um one identity sort of um change from player to coach and then another one from like coach to small business owner, right? And uh, I've already started off this podcast with you kind of saying how you're a fan of what we're doing here, but also because of the fact that you actually bring us together. Uh, and I'd never really thought about this until I heard you say it again there today where, you know, the, the cool thing about a chiropractic practice is that it brings together a pile of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds and you know what? They're just actually interested in improved performance, right? Um, uh, improved health, improved performance, improved posture, and taking things into their own hands to actually do that, right? 
Uh, so, so then it sort of goes back to that thing where you've gone from one to another and now you've kind of like recreated yourself as a entrepreneur. Can we call you that? Uh, I'll take it, yeah. Small business, <laughs> small business owner, taken on the family business, but yeah. just like in the way that you were trying to get your players to adapt to the environment that they're on, you've taken over this step to sort of run the, the family business and then you haven't factored into, I don't know what you were thinking, but you didn't factor into your business plan a global pandemic. No, no. And you were forced to close. Uh, and then you're like, well, you know, after a month or so of doing that, you're like, well, hang on a minute. Maybe if I just have the shop, uh, you know, and sell some coffee or start doing takeaway coffees, that's going to keep the interest of the people, right? So then, you know, that's that's evolved to you selling coffee, having a couple of locations of coffee, but um, still at the same time trying to manage now you've got the, the coffee crew, you've got the, the hairdressing crew, and uh, and you're, you're, I guess, trying to coach them to get the most, best out of them, right? Um, what, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's I, – I, I mean, one of the reasons why Fiji, not to go back to it too much, but resonated with me so much is that whole kind of, uh, you know, family being the be-all and end-all. So my journey with rugby had kind of, in, my, in some respects, reached its limits. Um, I travelled loads. I lived in China and, and America and Fiji, and I'd been around the world for God knows how many years and wanted some stability. So I moved back to the UK. My mum and dad wanted to retire, and I, and I took on the family business. Um and and wanted that to then grow into the what it, it, it what the next level for it to be. You know, it was a successful family business that had run for 30, it has has run for thirty odd years. Um, how can we take it onto the next level? But also, how can I look after, in some respects, my mum and dad, ensuring the business still runs, but they don't have to be there the entire time, which is what they've done for so long. Um, you know, how can it? become self-sufficient how can it be like one of the teams that i'd coached whereby everyone knows what they're doing and their place and their role they come in they execute that role and we will grow and we move forward they get better they learn as human beings they evolve they become more self-sufficient and the journey continues so how are you going with that given the fact that your parents are running the place and in the building five days a week for 35 years have they let go of the grip a little bit yeah they're down to two days a week um, okay. Yeah, um, that's so good. We'd, we'd gone. I've I'd kind of I'd gone back to rugby actually at the beginning of this year. We'd we'd evolved the business over two years, uh, increased turnover by thirty percent, um, put in a few bits and pieces, a few parameters, if you like that 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 term to to grow the business, um, and had uh, it was it was running and chugging along quite nicely. And I'd gone back to coaching and was figuring out this whole sort of you know work life balance of still being involved in sport because I love sport but making sure that the business was sufficient and, and self-sustainable and mum and dad weren't having to work all hours that God said and, and we'd really kind of got it to a cool place and then COVID happened um and that was really when it was you know someone just pulled the plug out of the wall and you know he, and I was like right what are we going to do now uh, and there was four or five weeks of trying to work out the furlough scheme, trying to work out how the business was going to survive, uh, trying to ensure that, you know, the staff were looked after, um, you know, what we're going to look like coming out of this, et cetera, et cetera. And that whole sort of headache um, 
uh, and how that kind of, I suppose, unfolded led me to this light bulb moment of, well, the best way to market the business and to ensure people think that we're going to be there is to be there. It's, it's in a community area. So got a coffee machine, put a coffee machine in, always wanted to own a coffee shop. The entrepreneurial side of me said, if we're standing there doing something, selling something, we're at least putting, bringing some money in. Uh, but also people are then realizing that, you know, Cracknell's hairdressing is, is going to come back because I can talk to our community. I can talk to the people who come to our salon, who walk past our salon. I can say hello to the other shop owners. I can, you know, I, I can be out and about and, and busy and, and proactive. Um, and that's, that was the whole reason behind it. And after about two weeks, we'd built up, you know, our clientele and a, 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 to, to make sure that people knew we were coming back. We'd started putting waiting lists together and building out, you know, post lockdown, what it was going to look like in terms of getting people back in the business to make sure that the business was, uh, you know, had a, had a plan moving forward. Yeah. And with that, a friend of mine had a co-working site. Um, so like a work, we work type thing called my work spot, which is in Maidenhead. Uh, and they've got a community area, which he was like, this is, you know, we love the coffee. Coffee's great, which we get from, uh, from Dicko, who's, uh, ground coffee society or grind as we you know traditionalists know it um, and uh, and um and and we put a site in there got a second coffee machine put that in there and then the next thing you know lockdown was 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 dropped and, and we were back to work but we'd actually from launching a coffee company built up a whole new different level of clientele newer newer people coming to the shop um, we'd pre-booked everybody back in, you know, because the systems we'd put in place uh, pre all of it, we could then, you know, reach out to our, our, our sort of our clientele, where prior to all of this, uh, it was still done by pen and paper. So there was no records of people um, uh, coming to the business. Uh, when I came in, one of the first things we did was put a computer system in, which might seem normal to you and to a lot of business owners, but... Yeah, Dara, we, we took over one of those chiropractic practices that had paper diary and it was so satisfying to get a computer in there. <laughs> still, still 60% of hairdressing companies have pen and paper. Hey, um, how's the WeWork thing going? Has it actually, um, with work from home, has it actually been really good for businesses like that or are they still struggling a bit? No, they're doing really, really well. They've got, um, I think they're up to 80 or 90%. And and they can open through this lockdown 2.0 and you can open and the coffee shop is operational for them and it's going well. Take Takeaway service. So um, my, Amazing. my little dream of, uh, of the, actual, the actual dream of the coffee shop was dreamt up back in Fiji 2014-15 because uh, um, one of the phrases I learned there was, uh, was Talanoa, which is, as I've interpreted it, is to meet, to talk, but it's about bringing people together, to have a conversation over a beer, over a coffee, over wine, um, and just bringing, uh, you know, that unity from the community to, together. Uh, so when we launched it, that was the whole the whole premise behind it, was to try and get the community back out, talking, you know, meeting, yeah. uh, and, and having a conversation. Really appropriate name at this time, as everyone's trying to be told to stay indoors, huh? Yeah. But uh, anyway, Almost here's though no one's listening because uh, there was a lot of people in Windsor Great Park today. But anyway, you can do unlimited exercise, so that's fine. Exactly. Um, so uh, have you got any plans for other coffee shops or, or not just yet? Just uh, just had that, that meeting this week. Um, I pulled 
because uh, the coffee shop can, can, can run and you're allowed to have a business meeting. Uh, I've got all of the guys that work within uh, Talano Espresso together to basically go, right, what does this look like for us now? We're a takeaway service over the next couple of weeks. How can we uh, make the most of this to support one business which is shut to um, make sure that the people who are employed through that don't have to be furloughed or don't have to lose work so we can look after them and support them. But also what's the next step? What's the next thing that we're looking at? Um, we've got a couple of ideas um, up our sleeve uh, and they're sort of, you well, know. Good luck with that, mate. I hope uh, you can, in fact, you should go and have a chat to Tim um, who's taken over from Grind and he's got a sort of similar plan within London, you know. But, okay. Um, so look, we should probably wind this up a little bit, but um, I do want to sort of talk about maybe two more things. Tell me that story again about Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about leadership and about the fact that um, it's obviously very important and you learned a lot about that through your career and uh, there's a couple of inspirational figures that I have, which is Scott and Shackleton, who are these kind of uh, Arctic explorers or Antarctic explorers, but the um, uh, you were telling me a little bit about Nelson, which I didn't know about. Well, Admiral Lord Nelson, as, as, as I, I, I basically, my interest in Nelson came from my nickname when I was born, which was Nelson because my, my eye wouldn't open. So uh, where I'd um, been brought to the world by forceps, my eye would, would open and my granddad was a bit of a character. Just, oh, it's like Nelson. So <laughs> even though I was, Christopher, I, was, I was called Christopher, I was... Um, Basically, my nickname is Nelson. It's stuck with mum and dad anyway. Um, but he he was a very uh, courageous leader. He was always sort of um, told to, you know, sit back in the office and 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 dictate from behind and, you know, get his, get his soldiers to do the, the dirty work. But he was a, you know, have-a-go hero. He was like, no, no, I've, if I'm going to ask somebody to go over there and attack that ship or I'm going to go and ask somebody to take that battlefield. I'm going to... I'm going to do it first and, and everyone should follow. Um, he was, you know, all about the empowerment of the group and bringing everybody together and, you know, wouldn't ask somebody to do something that he wasn't afraid to do himself. And I think that's a big part of running businesses, uh, whether it's entrepreneurial or big firms or sports teams or anything around that. You may have people who you delegate to around you because they're better at something than you are. Um, but you should never be afraid of, you know, picking up the rubbish, sweeping sweeping out of the building if it needs sweeping out, picking up the phone to talk to your clients. You know, you have to live it, breathe it, and be a part of it. Uh, so that- and then and we obviously mentioned that the, the All Blacks, uh, yeah. you know, that's their philosophy. Of, uh, it's been commented on many times, you know, the, the sweeping out the, the, the change rooms or the, you know, all that sort of stuff, isn't it? And, and- We learn it all from history, you know. Like, where's that? where does that come from? Well, that could have come from there. You know, it could have come from Scott. It could have come from, from from something like that. And that's why I think this podcast is great. And, you know, we're lucky that, you know, we meet different people with what we do. Like the person who's on your bed or the person that's in my chair or walks into the coffee shop, you know, is there's always a different story behind that person which gives you an opportunity to learn. Uh, and that's why we're moving yarning about the, the, the pod. It's, it's incredible people who you know, who you treat who do some incredible things or run some incredible businesses and mm. it's an opportunity for everybody to learn from that to become better 
at what they do, become the yeah. best person themselves from someone else's experience, right? Well, that's, uh, you know, and that's uh, thanks for sort of refocusing me on that whole concept. And I, you know, I do have some interesting characters lined up in the coming weeks as to why I'm doing this thing, you know, because obviously it started with chiropractors and it lost its way a little bit. But, um, you know, definitely chatting to, and I think I need to branch out of rugby and cycling. There seems to be a little bit of a focus on that. But that's um, what we're saying. You don't know what you don't know. So you're at the moment. You know, you're utilizing the people that you know, which I think will then lead you to the next, the next lot. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Adam's Adam's pod, which I listened to um, earlier on today, is, you know, it's a great story of of how what he does with his bike fit leads into what you do with, with chiropractic, and that's your connection. You know, mm-hmm. and when the bike is there, is 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 then the middle ground for you and I. It was you know, it, it was coffee. It was, it was grind now grand property society like you know and, and our journey and how you helped me overcome injury but not just through the treatment but actually our personal relationship as well which was forged from talking from that mental health but looking after the physical health space as well and and that's why i think this is a great segue pod for all the business men that you or and women that you come across because at the end of the day the their health is important to them and that's why they come to you yeah right well let's uh let's draw a line under it there mate um but you should tell me briefly what is this bike you're getting from adam by the way uh i know it's the terror thing but is it uh, a road bike a bit of a uh, a mix or what i think he's called the road bikes terra firma no so the brand is terra t-e-r-r-a is the road bike ah okay and then terra i can't remember what it is but he's i mean you 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 know better details than i but i'm the classic person who went and got a bike and thought it fitted didn't fit now needed and then went to see him for a bike fit and now he's making me a bespoke two fit bike because uh as the reason we met you know put my body through the mill and needed something a bit a bit more specialist you know what i love about his custom idea though because custom uh until i've recently like i'd never heard of someone building a custom bike based on almost the weight and the demands of the individual uh and most of these guys who have got a ton of cash who are probably pushing 100 kg should not be riding 800 gram carbon frames direct from italy no, exactly <laughs> and i'm i maybe not the cash but i fit into that category of somebody who's 106 kilos and broken two carbon frames so <laughs> I'm, uh, no, look, I, I can't wait to see it. When are you going to get your hands on it? I don't know. He keeps telling me it's on its way, but you know, it's not materialised yet. I'm, I'm, I'm just excited to support him in his, his yeah. journey and what he's doing with this because you know he, he sort of told me about it in the summer when I went for a fit, and mm. I've now seen what's come and materialised, and, and it's just it's just super cool, like what he's putting together, and I think that world of cycling is only getting bigger and bigger so it's just a super exciting journey for him to go on and again it's something that was born out of, of covid you know yeah. he, he's looked at his situation and adapted and gone right i'm going to go after that and he's passionate about it it'll work you know cool all right mate well i'll draw a line under it there thank you very much for joining me for part three <laughs> of the world's <laughs> most complicated podcast <laughs> <laughs> Thank All you. Right. I've, I've enjoyed it. I think it's uh, 
you know, we've we've definitely worked hard to get us to the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right, signing off. <laughs>